question. Sure. How question. long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Uh, What's at 129? Well, I had a project to 160. Okay. the wrongful conviction of Brennan Dassey. Over the course of season two, we explore the constitutional errors at the heart of this injustice, the chaos of Kaczynski, and the techniques responsible for determining Brendan's fate. The conversation continues. Welcome to the sixth hour. five years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Michigan High School special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to experience a macabre initiation into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This profound miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. something else. What was it? What was it? We have the evidence, Brendan. We just need you to to be honest with us. That he cut off her hair. He cut off her hair. What else? What else was done to her head? That he punched her. What else? It's okay. What do you make you do? What else happens to her in her head? Extremely, extremely important you tell us this. For us to believe you. Come on, Brendan. What else? We know, we just need you to tell us. That's all I can remember. All right, I'm just gonna come out and ask you, who shot her in the head? He did. Why didn't you tell us that? So I can think of it. Now you remember it? Tell us about that. 
The interrogations of Brendan Dassey were both negligent and unskilled, and the behaviour of Weigert and Fassbender directly contributed to the giving of an involuntary and wholly unreliable confession. Watching the interrogations of Brendan Dassey is a series of visceral moments, and the conduct of the investigators clearly violates basic standards of common decency and due process. And as we have heard from many experts in previous episodes, the confession should have been suppressed. It should never have made it to trial. As Professor Michelle Levine and Dr. Sally Miles wrote in their analysis, Under the Hood, Brendan Dassey, Language Impairments and Judicial Ignorance, even without the additional language and language impairment layers, this interrogation is widely considered a textbook example of what not to do in interrogation involving juveniles and individuals with intellectual impairments. When we add in the language piece, the interview becomes an abomination. And it absolutely is. So let's remind ourselves of the stark disparity in the amount of talking done by police in comparison to Brendan, who in these interactions is the informant, the giver of information, or so you would think. But over the course of two interrogations, including the March 1st interrogation, the investigators used 18,325 words to Brendan's 6,998. Brendan accounted for a mere 28% of the total interview. Now, that's a hefty amount of fact-feeding and contamination going on. And during the devastation of March 1st, they put 1,239 questions to Brendan, which equated to one question every 9 to 10 seconds. This ain't no example of best practice. It, it was quite the opposite. However, putting the moral and ethical questions of their conduct aside, what Weigert and Fassbender did to Brendan, the techniques they weaponized through their own incompetence, was pretty much what they were trained to do. The Reed method is an inherently coercive interrogation technique. It allows only two options, both of which inculpates the suspect. And to start from a position where the method is fatally flawed and does not account for considerations such as the developmental differences between adults and juveniles and the vulnerabilities a juvenile might experience when being interrogated. Innocent children like Brendan Dassey will be caught within a framework that's designed to manipulate and gain psychological advantage over them. They don't stand a chance. And innocence be damned. Police interrogation practices across the US are not standardised. There are over 700,000 law enforcement officers and 18,000 federal, state, county and local law enforcement agencies. The great poet John Donne wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. But this is not true of those 18,000 agencies. 
Now, police interrogation methods in the United States have evolved over the past 100 years. Pre-read and the behavioral psychology take, interrogation tactics were brutally violent. They inflicted mental and physical suffering to extract information and were collectively known as the third degree. The Wickersham Commission report in 1931 was a watershed moment for police interrogation practices. There was public outcry at the widespread use of these methods that inflicted mental and physical pain to elicit a confession, all designed to overcome a suspect's resistance and will. It was absolutely a time of police lawlessness. So now, the most widely used interrogation method, which was developed in the 40s post the commission report, sands the physical brutality, is just as accomplished at eliciting false confessions. Brendan Dassey is a case in point. But while we have law enforcement officers committed to the prosecutorial agenda as it concerns their fact-collecting process and the development of evidence in a manner that aligns itself with confirmation bias and tunnel vision and with an end goal of obtaining a conviction over the seeking of the truth. There will be other Brendan Dassies, though not quite like Brendan Dassey. We need the public outcry that created transformation post-1931 all over again. There are children to protect. Joining me today on The Sixth Hour is the exceptional James Trainham, a former homicide detective with the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, who throughout his 27-year career worked on numerous local and federal task forces and projects. He created and was the director of his department's violent crime case review project, which oversaw the review of old homicide cases. James is a member of the International Homicide Investigators Association, the Homicide Research Group, and many others. He has presented at universities, police academies, legislative bodies and conferences, and consults on various topics ranging from criminal profiling, videotaping of interrogation, police reform issues, wrongful convictions, and false confessions. And he is also the author of How the Police Generate False Confessions an inside look at the interrogation room, and it's, and it's a book widely revered and considered one of the most important books on the subject. Or as the Washington Post wrote, if you plan on being arrested for a felony, you must read this book. But it would be a watershed moment in 1994 when he obtained his own false confession after a 16-hour interrogation of a woman who confessed to homicide and was subsequently charged with first-degree murder. I'll let James tell the story. The conversation continues. James Trainum is a private consultant and retired detective who spent 17 years working homicide cases 
for the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. He was also director of the Violent Crimes Case Review Division and over the past 11 or so years has dedicated himself to criminal case review and consulting, the review of wrongful conviction cases specialising in the field of alleged false confessions and is an active advocate for reform in the interrogation room. James also provides instruction to law enforcement agencies, attorneys and universities on law enforcement investigative procedures, cold case investigation, interview and interrogation and the prevention of false confessions and wrongful convictions. Some may say an exceptional life of service. Hi James, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you began your career as a firefighter and a paramedic and you joined the MPD in Washington, D.C. in 1983. It would be 10 years later you would join the Homicide Branch. What prompted you to become a detective? I always wanted to be a detective. I always kind of liked, I was intrigued by um, trying to unravel the mysteries and all that. I really liked the forensic aspect of it, trying to piece the evidence together and through a logical sequence of deduction and all that, come up with solutions. It was just uh, something that fascinated me uh, since I was a small child. I, like you said, I kind of got sidetracked when I became a firefighter paramedic, mm. but I finally got back on track back when DC was starting to hire. And I really wanted to work for a bigger city uh, police department. And it would be 1994, I believe, that would present somewhat of a watershed moment for you where you obtained a confession after a 16-hour interrogation that resulted in a woman being charged with first-degree murder. Can you share what happened and how did you come to the realization that it was, in fact, a false confession? You know, I, I seem to be known more for a screw-up than any of the, my other work that I've done, but it's that screw-up that really led me down this path. But it was in 1994, I was a relatively new homicide detective. I was trained in the standard accusatory interrogation tactics that were used. I was trained by the FBI. And we had a case, uh, it was a high profile murder and we were really at a standstill, but we had been receiving tips from a composite drawing of the suspect and also from an ATM photo uh, that had been uh, captured of the suspect. And we made a critical mistake in that we were working backwards. We were taking the tips and trying to see if we could fit the evidence to the tips. But we identified this one suspect uh, who looked pretty good. And then we also had what we thought was good forensic evidence that connected the suspect to the crime. So we picked her up, began our interrogation, like all interrogations, she denied and all of that stuff. And then after several hours, she gave a quasi-confession, then later on a full confession. And like I had mentioned, you know, these tactics that would pass muster anywhere in this country. So we thought that, okay, we've made good progress. We've solved the case. But what happened was during the follow-up investigation, as I was trying to corroborate some of the things that she said, we stumbled across her alibi. And her alibi was unshakable. It was, you know, she had signed into a homeless shelter and unless she had like 12 people who were working with her as part of this conspiracy, she could not have been where we needed her to be. So then we had to go back and examine the basic premises of why we believe that she did this to begin with. 
and our so-called solid forensic evidence that we thought we had turned out not to be so solid. So we had to let her go. So I had two pressing questions on my mind. One was, what did I do? What happened in that interrogation room that gave that woman the idea that it was a good idea to confess to a crime that she had nothing to do with? And two, how did she know all the details about the crime? Because, you know, that's how we're supposed to be able to know a good confession from a bad one, because we have what we call holdback information. These are details about the crime that only the investigators or somebody who was there would know. And she knew a lot of them. So how did she do, you know, how did that happen? Well, fortunately, I kind of violated policy on this case because back then we never videotaped the entire interrogation. We would only videotape the end result. After you got the confession, then we would do it on videotape. But I began videotaping much earlier. And so I was able to capture a large part of the interrogation. And when we went back and looked at it, we realized that very subtly, we would provide her with little bits and details of information. Sometimes it was through leading questions. Sometimes it was from showing her the evidence. And she was able to piece together this story that had enough accurate details in it, had enough of those holdback facts that made us believe that, yeah, she had to have been there. Well, also, at that point, everybody believed that nobody would ever confess to a crime that they didn't commit. So combine that with the confirmation bias that we felt that she was guilty and our ignorance about contamination, and it was just a perfect storm. Yeah. But thankfully, we did the follow-up, and we realized our mistake. So what I wanted to do after that was take that error, take what I had learned, and start talking to my colleagues and let them know that, you know, this is, these are things that I see happening every day. And this is what it, you know, how it led to my mistake. And so that's how I got started. And I began teaching classes to uh, a local law enforcement, local homicide schools, and also to attorneys. And it kind of blossomed into now, uh, they kind of consider me to be an expert in this area of police practices. Yeah. And with hindsight, when you look back at that, interrogation? Were there red flags that were just missed? Tons of red flags. And that's the thing, you know, it's been obvious for decades. It's come up in research about wrongful convictions over and over and over again, but there's been a renewed focus on it. And that is the role of confirmation bias. You know, I went in there believing that she was guilty. So I wasn't looking for evidence of or information, I was looking for confirmation. Yeah. So I was looking for those details that she gave me that fit my scenario, and I would grab onto those. And anything else that she said that might have, that was exculpatory, that might have, that, that didn't fit, that might have you know, shown that, that she was innocent, went right over top of my head. Yeah. And you see that, I mean, that is a typical scenario in these wrongful conviction cases, it's, it's present. I mean, it's, and the thing about confirmation bias is when you're in it, you cannot see it. It takes somebody on the outside looking in. And that's why it's so important to have people like devil's advocates who are critically looking at your work so that they can see the things that you're missing. Yeah, for sure. 
And as you began to advocate for reforms, did you find that there was a backlash from fellow investigators in in your questioning of methods that had perhaps been successful for them? Yes and no. The biggest backlash that I got was when my department was told that they had to begin videotaping interrogations from start to finish. And the reason that happened was because there had been a rash of uh, false confessions from some surrounding jurisdictions that had made the media. And so the city council pretty much said, well, we want you guys to start doing this. We think it's a good practice. And I supported it. I came out in favor of it. And my nickname became, let's see, Benedict Trainum. Uh, <laughs> I take on Benedict Arnold, for those of you who don't know American history, you know, a traitor from the from the Latin American Revolution right there. And they just didn't understand. I mean, they thought that I was, you know, just going against the, uh, the thin blue line, as they say. And yeah, I was. But I realized that was best practices. And that was the reason that I could figure out what happened. And like I would try to tell them, you know, a confession is going to be critically evaluated by the courts, by the defense attorney. So why not make it an absolute record? Because even the best detective, even even the best Boy Scout could have a bad day on the stand. So why risk losing it if there's no reason to lose it just because you don't want to videotape? When I have taught classes, I've met some resistance. But when I talk just to law enforcement themselves, in fact, the first time I ever gave this presentation to a mixed group of law enforcement officers, detectives, and whatnot. It was at a cold case homicide conference. And I was up there, I was actually showing the videotape of my confession and talking about what I did and how we gave her information here, information there. And this is how she put it all together. And there was this one retired detective from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department homicide unit. She had been on a homicide unit longer than I had been alive. And she, I mean, she was tough, you could tell. And she was sitting there in the front row with her legs crossed, her arms crossed, and giving me the snake eye. (laughs) And I'm going, I am not winning this person over one bit. Well, at the very end, as soon as I finished, she came right up to me, put her finger right in my face. And I'm not going to use her exact words. They were just a bit salty, but she said, (laughs) if any of these people out here in this audience tell you that they didn't see themselves making the same mistakes that you've made up there, they're lying. She said, this really opened my eyes. I wish I had seen this 20 years ago. Wow. So that's, you know, law enforcement really wants to do it right, but we are an extremely conservative culture and we are extremely... No, cops just hate change. And so if they're used to something, if they think that there's something that's going to make their job harder for them, they're going to really resist it. But there's another side to why they do not want the videotape. And this came out, this has come out in private, but it has also come out in public. In fact, I was um, speaking down at the Florida Innocence Commission, uh, and this was a group that had come together. It was judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, law enforcement uh, agencies, and they had come together to kind of develop best practices to avoid wrongful convictions. And I was given a presentation 
on why they should videotape interrogations in their entirety. And I had a slide up and I was going through all the reasons why cops have told me that they don't want to videotape. And I was blowing them all away. You know, this is BS, this is BS, this is why, this is why, this is why. And this was being televised publicly live at the time. And the head of the state law enforcement agency down there, he raised his hand and he said, well, there's one reason that my detectives keep telling me why we shouldn't videotape that's not up there. I go, well, what's that? He goes, well, if you're interrogating a suspect and they give you several different stories, and if you're videotaping, then you got to turn all that over to the defense attorney. And all it does is muddy the water. All we want to turn over is the best and the last. And I'm looking at him going, you realize that what you're saying on TV is that your detectives break the law, that you're withholding potentially exculpatory evidence in violation of, yes. you know, constitutional law. <laughs> and I'm going, how do I say it nicely that <laughs> you're stupid? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, but that's the thing. We don't understand... Law enforcement in the U.S., we have a very poor understanding of our ethical and constitutional obligations, believe it or not. And so oftentimes we fall into this noble cause corruption thing where, you know, we're out there to get the bad guy. We know who the bad guy is. OK, so we're not we're not going to mess around with with these defense attorney tricks that might get this bad guy off. And so. Maybe I'll testify a certain way. Maybe I want to leave something out a little bit, you know, because it's not going to make any difference. We know he's the bad guy. And so we're doing the wrong thing for what we think is the right reason. That would intersect with confirmation bias, would it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Confirmation bias, ego. Like I said, I mean, just it's not our job to get the bad guy. It's our job to gather the evidence in order, whichever way the evidence goes, and then present it and then let the courts and the prosecutor take it from there. Yeah, for sure. And was the, the 1994 moment the catalyst for your book, How the Police Generate False Confessions? Well, that was the start. and But it, it was a journey because the revelation didn't come right away. Actually, it didn't come for a couple of years because even though we knew that she wasn't involved because she couldn't have been, we continued to think for the longest time that she had to have known somebody who was. And it wasn't until I had read about the Central Park Five case up in New York, uh, five young men who had confessed to the rape of a, a woman in Central Park that turned out to be totally bogus. And I began reading more and more about false confessions. It was funny because I was reading this one paper by Saul Kassen, who's an expert in the area of false confessions. And he was talking about all these things. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've seen my colleagues do that. I've seen my coworkers do that. Not really realizing that I had done the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until years later we're actually doing a review of all these cases. So I pulled this case out to look at it again, just to see if what we may have missed. And I was sitting there looking at the videotape and that was really the first time, looking back in hindsight with this new knowledge that I had, that I saw how I, I was contaminating the interrogation. And so really 
it was years later, that was my real eureka moment yeah. uh, right there. And so it not only changed the way I look at interrogations and you know, confessions, but it also changed the entire way that I do investigations. And your expertise is called upon to review wrongful conviction cases and false confession cases. Where do those requests originate? Do they come from law enforcement agencies, defense attorneys, investigators? Well, I do work with some law enforcement agencies, but mostly on unsolved cases, working with organizations that have been hired by a law enforcement agency to help review their policies and procedures to try to improve their investigative practices. On the other side, I usually am approached by organizations like the Innocence Project or private attorneys who ask me to look at cases and give my opinion on uh, not only the interrogation and the ultimate confession, but the overall investigation itself. Because, you know, one of the things that you want to look at it's so funny because when they when they reach out to me and they say, okay, we're going to send you the videotape and we're going to pick up the interrogation or the transcript or whatever like that. And I go, no, I want everything. And they will, why? And I said, well, I'm not trying to pad my bill or anything because a lot of my cases are done for free. But uh, um, the reason is, is I want to understand how this person became a suspect because that's mm-hmm. the first step. That, that's the first step in getting a false confession or a wrongful conviction is by identifying the wrong person as a suspect. So I want to understand how that happened and then how the whole thing progressed. So when I look at cases, I just don't look at you know the individual confession, interrogation, and all that, but the case in its entirety uh, right there, because that's really the only way that you can kind of by knowing the case, by knowing the crime scene, by knowing the things that led up to the interrogation and the confession itself, it helps you better evaluate the reliability of the final confession. Yeah. And would that predominantly be post-conviction? It's mostly post-conviction. I've done some civil cases where somebody who was wrongfully convicted is now suing a police department. I have done a lot of new cases where the person has not been convicted yet, but most of my work is on post-conviction cases. Yeah, yeah. Now, I just want to touch on your joining the brief of Amici Curi on behalf of independent law enforcement instructors and consultants. You were joined by Wicklander Zalowski and others in support of Brendan Dassey's petition for writ of certiorari at the U.S. Supreme Court. How did you come to be involved and what had you hoped to bring to the attention of the court? Well, the reason I became involved is that I knew the attorneys. I had worked with the attorneys who represented Mr. Dassey in the past. I have, I worked on similar cases. I mean, unfortunately, it's all too true. These cases all fit a similar pattern and it's almost like all you got to do is change the names and the dates and they're all the same. And Brendan's case is so similar to so many other cases where the person has been exonerated, uh, where it was obvious that the confession is unreliable because they were fed the information by the detective. 
And it's the fact that, you know, that they didn't know anything about it to begin with. Plus his vulnerability because of his, his youth, because of his other disabilities and all of that. Uh, it just fit this pattern. And what I just wanted to try to help show is that, you know, this is, this is not an abnormality. This is, you know, this is a typical, really classic false confession. And oftentimes uh, the courts hear a lot from academics, but, and they don't hear that much from, you know, actual police officers who've been in the interrogation room, who see things that when they go wrong and can bring that experience uh, to the attention of like judges and prosecutors and things like that. Yeah. Had you been aware of the Dassey case in real time? So back in 2007? No, no, I was not. It wasn't until uh, much later when I actually spoke with his, like Steve Drizzen and his current attorneys and all that. And also I saw some of the documentaries, but you know, that's how I first really learned about it. But it was so sad. I mean, I was sitting there watching his interrogation as the detective was trying to to elicit that holdback information by giving it to him to begin with. And uh, I, I think I've been doing this too long because my, my poor suffering wife, she was sitting there as I am saying what I know the detective is going to say next. Yeah. Because I've just seen this happen so often. And of course, when they say stuff like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, it's typically way too late. They've already done it. Yes. Yeah. But that's my first real exposure to it. And then I began looking at it. I began getting a lot of the material that wasn't available through the documentary, like the actual uh, recordings, tapes, transcripts, and things like that. So I was able to get much more insight as to what happened. And how would you describe what unfolds, particularly, I guess, with the March 1st interrogation, which formed the case in its entirety against Brandon. How would you describe what happened? The detectives told a story. The detectives, basically, they did what we're trained to do in an interrogation is make that person believe that their best option is to provide a story that matches what I believe to be true. Now, if you're right about your suspect, then, you know, you're on the right track. But if you're wrong, they're going to have to get, they're going to have to figure out what that story is. And it was obvious that the detectives had come up with this idea. One of the other things that they were doing, which really wasn't so obvious in there, is they were using or they were relying on their perceived ability to determine whether or not somebody's lying to them. And all these interrogation schools that teach this technique that I'm talking about, they teach this so-called behavioral analysis stuff. And uh, where you can, you know, sit there and you can watch a person's body language or the way that they don't look at you or the way that they keep their arms crossed. So they're hesitant to answer questions and all the things that a typical teenage boy, especially one with disabilities, is going to exhibit. But all of these things. They use this and they say that if you uh, use this training, then you can detect whether or not somebody's lying with over 80% accuracy. 
Heck, they even say that you can determine whether or not they're guilty with over 80% accuracy. And that's kind of what they were doing because, you know, they really didn't have much. They were working off a hunch. And so they're going in there and they're seeing all of this behavior that they're going, ah, that means he's guilty. That means he's being deceptive and all that. The reality is it's pseudoscience. The people who actually created it admit that it's not based on any science whatsoever, but their own personal observations. And decades and decades and decades of research have shown it is not accurate. It's no more than a flip of a coin. But we used it, we used it on him. And that's why when you know he's sitting there and he's hunched over and all that, they're going, ah, oh, he's he's you know holding back something on it. And that with the confirmation bias and their looking to confirm their beliefs rather than get information. That's why also their beliefs, like I'd mentioned before, that nobody would confess to a crime that they didn't commit. So it doesn't matter how much information we tell him, he's not going to say, I did it unless he did, which is totally untrue. So they didn't see any problems with, you know, feeding all that information to him, letting him guess all this stuff. And that's, you'll see that a lot with these, these cases when they are on video. And I recommend that you go look at a lot of them because you'll see this, the subject is guessing. They're guessing, they're guessing, they're guessing. If it's a wrong guess, the detective ignores it. They go, oh, he's just being evasive. Oh, he's just trying to minimize it. But if it's a right guess, boom, go grab onto it. Oh, good for you. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're telling the truth. When in fact, these confessions actually are nothing but a game of 20 questions, where you know, that childhood game where you're allowed to ask a certain number of questions about what I'm thinking about, and I tell you yes or no, and you're able to narrow it down. Well, that's how the person who's being interrogated gathers those facts. They gather it in bits and pieces, and they bring this narrative together. But it, you know, the fact that he got so many things wrong mm -hmm. and that they just ignored but when you look at it and you ask the question, whose story is it? It is obvious that it's the detective story and it's not Brendan's. Yeah. Yeah. And it was definitely, would you agree, an investigation that was suspect based and not evidence based? Yeah. And by that, that's a that's a very good point. What happens is at first the investigation, of course is evidence-based because you're gathering evidence, you really don't have a theory, that sort of thing. It's sooner or later, it's got to shift to a suspect-based. But that's a dangerous point because if you shift too soon, like through a rush to judgment or whatever, or you shift for the wrong reason, and then you don't evaluate new evidence as it comes in, you know, what you start doing is you start looking for evidence to confirm your that is your suspect. Now, a point that I like to make is that you know, we get it wrong a lot, but investigations are messy things. You get a lot of information coming in very quickly. It's piecemeal. A lot of times it's wrong. And so our initial theories that we develop are often wrong. But in fact, there's a study that was out back in the 1990s this was before they had the DNA databases. And if you, um, you know, had DNA from a crime scene, you couldn't have it analyzed unless you had DNA from a suspect. It had to be a one-to-one -one comparison. So you would go out and you would either get a consent from your suspect or you would get a search warrant. 
and you would submit it. Well, they found that they, they did a survey of all these laboratories that were working for law enforcement. And they found, I believe it was like 20 some percent of the initial suspects DNA was eliminated from the crime scene DNA. So, I mean, there were other reasons why that may happen, but we're getting it wrong a lot, but it's supposed to be self-correcting. As we get new information coming in, we're supposed to evaluate that new information and then change our theory to fit the new information. But a lot of times when there's the rush to judgment and confirmation bias, and when you jump from you know evidence to suspect-based investigation, we don't change our theory. If it's stuff that doesn't match, we just toss it aside and we keep on going. And that's what they did with Brendan. Yeah. And confirmation bias is also contagious. It can move from the, and it happened in Brendan's case. It went from the detectives to the prosecutors to Brendan's own initial attorneys yes. who used that horrible private investigator to re-interview him and get him to say all this stuff all over again. Yeah. I mean, that was just horrendous. Right. You saw things that I think have never been seen before in a court of law. I can't think of another case where a defense attorney and his investigator um, plotted to pressure their client to plead guilty to a case that he was in which he was expressing his innocence. That tape was somewhat disturbing, I think. It was extraordinarily disturbing. And, and Michael O'Kelly is a seasoned investigator, and I believe what he did to Brendan Dassey traumatized him. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, do you want to spend the rest of your life in prison? So is that a yes or a no? I can't hear you. Okay. Do you want to get out and have a family someday? Well, that means you have to cooperate with me and help me help me work with you. Yeah, that was absolutely horrendous. Obviously, there's an interrogation technique that's widely used across the US. And when it is poorly executed, it's a much maligned technique. But I believe it's the most widely used interrogation technique for law enforcement. What are your thoughts regarding that technique and its ability to clearly elicit false confessions, particularly from vulnerable juvenile suspects? The interrogation approach that is predominantly used in the U.S. can be generally defined as the accusatory approach. Biggest school and probably the industry standard for the interrogation approach is what they call the Reed technique. And it's taught by this group that's referred to as the Reed Institute. They were the ones who, who kind of formalized it, put it down in writing. And if you look at all these other uh, schools that kind of teach something similar, all they're doing is teaching a version of the read technique. And the read technique is very, very efficient. It does work, but you know, study after study shows that it not only produces good confessions, it can produce false confessions as well. And especially when it comes to juveniles, uh, people with intellectual or developmental disabilities, people who trust authority. Well, that sort of thing. Even when it's followed right, I mean, for decades, the Reed people have said time and time again, if you follow our technique 
properly, you will never ever get a false confession. However, the person who actually founded the Reed technique got his own false confession, uh, confirmed false confession back in the 1950s. But what's funny about that is what they'll say is, you know, the first rule of the Reed technique is you do not interrogate innocent people. So, you know, of course, if the person's not innocent, then you're never going to get a false confession from them. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous logic. Absolutely. I mean, they use the Reed interview, don't they, as a lead in to flipping it into the interrogation, the Reed interrogation. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the thing about the Reed thing is that uh, it, it, they also promote it as a way that you can quickly close cases. It's a way to bypass doing real detective work. You kind of identify your suspect based on this behavioral analysis, pseudoscience. You go get the, you go interrogate them, you get a confession, you close your case, you move on. And so it makes for lazy cops. I know people who basically do what I call, that's investigation by interrogation, where they just bring in everybody and they try to sweat them and see what they say. The second, it's like those people who use polygraphs and they polygraph everybody. And if you pass the polygraph, then they clear you. If you don't, then you become a suspect, which is also horrible because polygraphs are pseudoscience. Yeah, absolutely. I've spoken many times with Professor Michelle Levine and with Dr. Sally Miles, they developed an analysis called Under the Hood, Brendan Dassey with speech and language impairments. And they detail quite extensively the word salad of the two investigators and Dr. Miles in particular stated that she could not believe that a method that's not grounded in science could even be considered a technique. And I guess as an overarching comment on Reed, do you think it has a place in the interrogation room of 2021? Personally, no. Reed back when it was created was created as an alternative to the third degree, which was being used extensively by law enforcement, even though they denied it back in the day, where we would just take people in and beat the crap out of them. And that's how we got confessions. And so Reed itself was a revelation back then, but its time is gone. It's over. There's much better scientifically based ways of getting information from people that is much more, gets more information, more reliable information, doesn't have all of the problems associated with Reed, and also is more likely to help build trust with the community. The Reed people, in fact, the Reed textbook, and this is almost going to be a quote from the Reed textbook, the Reed textbook admits that in any other social setting, these techniques would be considered unethical. However, they justify them because, the, because they say that the people you are dealing with are on a lower social moral plane. So we should be allowed to manipulate them, to lie to them. Now, you know, people who are not convicted of any crime, they might be totally innocent. And yet you're saying that they're on a lower, that, that you can do these sort of things. Now, also, we use the same techniques on witnesses who we don't think are telling us the truth. Yes. And it, I mean, how can you get people to trust you when you're actively lying to them and trying to trick them and manipulate them? It does not 
bode well for a good community relationship right there. Where these other techniques, their primary goal is not only to get information, but to do so respectfully and ethically. And they work. The problem for US law enforcement is that they take more work. They make you be a detective in order to use them. Reed lets you cut through all that chase and, you know, like I say, take shortcuts. Yeah. Why do you think that people do confess to crimes that they, they haven't committed? That they haven't committed? Yeah, yeah. Well, for the very same reason that they confess to crimes that they do commit. Their, you know, the short-term benefit of telling the detective what they want to hear versus the long-term consequences, especially with juveniles. Because remember, a lot of the times these detectives are using real or implied threats of some sort of inevitable consequences or real or implied promises of leniency. And so they're being told, you know, we have, we're, they're being lied to. We have all this evidence against you. We got all these witnesses. You're going to be, get convicted. You know, with all this evidence, what is the jury going to think? You know, what are they going to say? However, if you show remorse, if you, you know, say that maybe this is what happened, if you explain what happened, that they'll give you a theme such as, you know, first off, we know you did it. There's nothing you can say otherwise. I don't want to hear any denials whatsoever, but did you do it because? And we'll give themes that, you know, have a justification. There's, you're still admitting that you did it, but it has a justification. Now, you can't get any words in edgewise because I'm just stopping you anytime you try to deny what's going on. So then you start to think, oh, my God, this detective who's, who tells me he can't lie to me, even that's a lie that I'm saying, of course. And he's saying that all this evidence against me and he wants to help me. But the only way he can help me is if I do this. Oh, my God, I'm going to. I'm going to have to do this to help save myself or save my kids or save my family or whatever. And we're very good. It's just a very high pressure sales tactic. And we just narrow your, your range of options so that you feel like, you know, you only have a few. And if you don't take advantage of my um, offer to help right now, it's going to be gone forever. And so people, People will bite. And I know it's counterintuitive, but people of every walk of life have fallen victim to this. They're even the, one of the things that is also even more counterintuitive is that some people begin to believe that, my God, he's telling me all these things. I have to have done it. So I did it, but I just don't remember doing it. And that's actually what they call an internalized false confession, where the person, at least for a brief period of time, begins to believe that they did it, but for some reason their memory isn't there. And so that becomes a confession. I think we saw that in the Marty Tancliffe case. Yeah, Marty Tancliffe. It's not all that uncommon. Because remember, I mean, I'm telling you, we got witnesses, we got scientific evidence, we got all this other kind of stuff. You know, it can help create a false memory. I've done several cases where, where that was a fact. Usually the person realizes what happened as soon as they're taken out of the interrogation environment. But during that moment, I mean, nobody 
if you haven't been in that, you cannot say that you would never ever confess to a crime that you didn't commit. Look at it this way. I've confessed to crimes that I didn't commit, technically, okay. A parking ticket. Let's say I got a parking ticket, which I've got a lot of because I live in a big city. And some of them are, I know that I'm right. I know that the person is wrong. Now, do I go down to the hearing and spend the afternoon down there and contest that ticket for $10? Or do I just sign on the back, say, yeah, I accept it and mail my $10 in? I'm doing a cost benefit analysis. And it benefits me just to pay the $10, admit that I was wrong, and move on. That's the same thing that happens. That's a simple explanation of what happens in the interrogation room. You're doing that cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. And particularly if you're a juvenile, and particularly if you have intellectual limitations, then you're going to take the lesser of two evils. You don't understand the process that's playing out in front of you. That's exactly how we present it. We present two evils. One is really bad and one is not so bad. And you're going to go with the one not so bad. Even plea bargains. Plea, you know, there's a lot of false guilty pleas because, you know, they're ba- being told by the prosecutor, if you want to get out of jail now, you accept this plea to a lesser charge. If you don't want to get out of jail now, you can sit in jail for six months to a year until we get around the trial. And you may win. But you're going to be in jail for six months to a year. So what do you want to do? And people have jobs. They have families. Oftentimes they take take a deal when they're actually innocent just to get out of jail and move on with their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's counterintuitive to being called a justice system when you have those sort of practices prevailing. You know, again, with the confessions, there are three distinct types, if I'm correct, and that's voluntary, compliant, and persuaded. What has been the most prevalent type of confession, particularly as it relates to juveniles or those with intellectual challenges that you've come across in your work? It's, um, well, the terms that I'm more, it's voluntary, coerced, and internalized. And you know, basically voluntary is a, they just come in with no pressure whatsoever and they give it up. Uh, coerced is, they know that they're confessing to something they didn't do but they feel like they're under pressure and they have to do that. That is what you typically find with your juvenile cases. Uh, the internalized, like I said, I, I see those more with adult cases right there. But the coerced ones, you know, I tell the story about how cops, because I've reviewed cases, a lot of cases where there was no videotape whatsoever. And I look at the testimony and I reviewed, I reviewed newer cases where there is videotape. And back when, like I said, departments were wanting to videotape interrogations and people wanted departments to videotape interrogations and the cops would say, we'll never ever get a, another confession. Well, they were right because the ones that were not being videotaped, all of your transcripts, all of your court testimony basically said, oh yes, the young man came in and he sat down and we said, what happened? And he broke down crying and he told us a three hour period. He told us a story and we just sat there patting him on the back saying, it's going to be okay. Tell us what happened next. Well, after they started videotaping, you never saw any case like that again. You always saw the active persuasion. 
So that just kind of shows what kind of BS was going on, you know, back in the day and, and in their testimony at that time. Why do you think courts and juries, once a confession has been allowed into evidence, overwhelmingly hand down guilty verdicts, particularly in cases where, again, like Brandon's, there is zero corroborative evidence? Well, first off, people still have a hard time believing unless somebody can get up there and explain it to them. It's not only explain how false confessions happen, but kind of point out that this is what's going on in this case and also show how the contamination occurred and how there's no cooperation whatsoever. But a lot of courts will not let uh, somebody like myself or another expert come in and talk about that. Or when we do talk about it, it's very, very limited as to what we can say. And so that's part of the problem. You know, uh, even though, but even if a jury does say, okay, yeah, I understand that false confessions happen, but I would never do it. So did I have a harder time seeing how it happened here? I think that's that's the problem. But I think that's beginning to change a lot. And it's because more and more we're actually getting every year we're we're getting more and more confirmed false confession cases and you know podcasts like yourself documentaries things like that are now showing people how this occurs they're becoming better educated you know, one thing i've noticed is because of all of that a lot of the younger officers are much more aware of the problem and they oftentimes try to be more careful the problem is is that they're not being trained in newer and better ways you know the only thing that they know is the read technique or similar things like that when there are actually better techniques that are out there they're beginning to take hold uh they're beginning to become aware of them but most agencies still rely on the old the old-fashioned way of doing things yeah in a report published in in feb this year it states that there are just under 700,000 full-time law enforcement officers in the United States. What type of reforms would you like to see in the interrogation rooms? And how do you initiate those reforms in such a large cohort of people? Well, it's not so much the number of officers, it's the number of agencies. We have like over 18,000 different law enforcement agencies. Each one is a separate kingdom with a separate king or queen chart. And while they may have statewide standards and things like that, you know, you, you pretty much have to go from agency to agency to agency to implement change. And the fight is the same. And each agency goes, oh, my situation is different and they're not. So it's like the UK, you know, they have the ability to say, this is the way we're gonna do things. And it's done pretty much that way across the country. We cannot do that. So that's the biggest thing. I would like to see some sort of national standard for what it takes to be a police officer, for what it takes to be a detective. We do not have any national standards like that anywhere. And then we had, not that long ago, back when, when Obama was president, he developed what they call the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group, which was an answer to the problem of the previous administrations where they, they were torturing terrorists trying to get information from them. 
well, the high value decaying interrogation group or the HIG group, they were gonna come up with scientifically based methods, ethical uh, humanitarian based methods in order to interrogate or interview these people and get information from them. But as a component of that, they had a research group. And the research group was actually also developing techniques for law enforcement, studying what was done in the UK and other countries and trying to adapt it for use in the US here. That's being done on a small scale. There's actually organizations out there that are beginning to teach that. Also, the second largest interrogation school in this country, the Wicklander Interrogation School, that used to teach to read technique, they say that they will no longer teach it because of the problems with false confessions. So slowly, you know, that, that change is being made. Do you know if interrogators are trained um, for tactics for people with limitations. I mean, you and I can sit here and say, well, of course, you know, people with higher functioning are better able to deal with the abstract, people with lesser functioning, or, you know, maybe a child, uh, you need to be more concrete. But do we know that the police had any idea what they were supposed to be doing if they, they had known the things that you're talking about? Well, Your Honor, I, the record doesn't speak to the type of training that these officers received. The record does include amicus brief by uh, one of the leading interrogation training firms, Wicklander Zulowski, which uses this interrogation video to train police officers how not right. to interrogate children. But, uh, so, so I would guess, though, that maybe the real question. You know, we can't even get all the all of our police agencies to even videotape interrogations from start to finish. A lot of them still don't do it or a lot of them just say it's recommended, it's not mandatory. So yeah, we're a real mess. Yeah, it, it's, you know, like we know with the UK, they use the peace method. Over here in Australia, they, law enforcement tends to use read or peace. So oh, they pick and choose, I guess. But how, how, do we, how do we move forward? So how do we educate yeah. jurors and the judicial branch? Because if we, Again, I use Brendan's case as an example, as this is a podcast dealing with the elements that contributed to Brendan's wrongful conviction and continued incarceration. We look at the the Seventh Circuit judges, particularly the unbunked majority. There's no recognition of the fact that innocent people do confess. How do we educate jurors and the judicial branch? Exactly what you're doing right here, that's, a, that's one step. Um, one thing I have found is that we really don't institute change in systems like that unless two things happen. We embarrass the hell out of people and people get sued. So when these cases do come up, you know, we just have to bring them to the public. We have to uh, make the public aware uh, what's happening. We have to, you know, show how these cases develop through, you know, documentaries, through, through the news media and all of that. And I wish that law enforcement pays millions and millions and millions of dollars out every year based on wrongful convictions, based on, you know, false confessions and things like that, lawsuits. If the insurance companies that are having to pay this money out if their liability attorneys would just go to these agencies, police departments and say, we're not going to, to pay out these claims anymore unless you, you know, make certain changes 
and you um, prove your training uh, that's a curriculum and you make certain changes, then that's when you'll see a lot of changes occur. But, you know, nobody really wants to go that route. Uh, it's just too easy to go the way that we're going. And, um, and you know, when one of the things that we're trying to do that they're trying to promote with law enforcement here is that when we do have a wrongful conviction, rather than just brush it off to the side and try to say, well, that was that one bad detective, you know, or that you know, one bad apple and he did something wrong and that's why we got it. No, that bad apple, he was hired, he was trained, he was supervised, he made decisions based on what he thought was right and good at the time and nobody checked him. And it went on to the prosecutors and all that. So we need to look at all the factors and we need to do reviews like they do if an airplane crashes. You can always blame the pilot, but there's a lot of other factors going on and we're never, ever, ever going to get to the bottom of it and come up with any meaningful reform until we see how all of these things play a part. Like organizations that, uh, a lot of police organizations, a detective is judged by their closure rate. So they're encouraged to cut corners, to, to make the arrest and to move on to other cases and not do the follow-up work because they're trying to get their closure rate up, things along that line. If it's a high profile case and the chiefs start making decisions based on what's good for the department, but what's not good for the case. All of those things play a part. And um, so we have to start looking. I know in the UK, I know, I don't know in Australia, but I know in Canada, they have had major commissions who've looked at these things from top to bottom, and they come up with great recommendations and all that. But we just don't do that here. We kind of put them under the rug and we move on. Yeah. One of your comments when I was reading through for research that, that stuck with me was that you said the judges will hold hearings on the reliability of eyewitnesses or the reliability of jailhouse informants but not on the reliability of a confession. And that's, that's a great point because, you know, they feel that that's up to the jury to make that determination. But if you have a confession that is so riddled with contamination, you know, getting it to the jury, you would never, if you have an eyewitness identification that was so problematic and riddled with procedural, you know, contamination and all of that, that wouldn't get before the jury. But a confession will, and you know, once you, once they hear that confession, it is so hard to get them to think about it, other than the absolute gold standard of somebody's guilt. So yeah, I think judges have to take on a certain responsibility and keep crap evidence because that's their job to keep garbage evidence away from the jury, and most judges just don't want to do that. You know, the other thing is, is that jurors oftentimes uh, feel like, well, if the judge says it's admissible, then, you know, it must be good. Well, you know, judges, like we were talking about, judges don't look at the reliability. They look at whether or not it's quote and unquote voluntary. And I'll be honest, in this country, if somebody waives their Miranda rights, and we know how to get people to waive their Miranda rights, we know how to manipulate the hell out of them to get them to waive those Miranda rights. Well, they feel if somebody waives their Miranda rights, then you know you can almost put pins under their fingernails and it's still voluntary because of that paper that they signed. But one point that I like to bring up is 
every single wrongful conviction that was a result of a false confession, there was some judge that ruled that confession voluntary. So I think that judges have to be a lot stricter on what type of tactics might render a confession involuntary, but they also need to be much more, much more critical of the quality of the confession evidence that's going before the jury. It's sad that the more heavily contaminated a confession is, the more believable it is to a jury. Because it's going to have more details. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you can really explain and show them how that contamination occurred. And sometimes it's so subtle. I mean, even even with my own case, when I, it's a couple of times when I would show the videos and I would walk through, here's where the contamination occurred. Here, here, here. And the only thing that this person was able to tell us later that wasn't a result of contamination was just a guess on her part. But once in a while, I would still have somebody raise their hand and go, are you sure that she didn't do it? <laughs> I mean, because it looks like she's given a good confession there. You know, these are law enforcement people. Just in finishing up, James, what would you like to see happen in the Brendan Dassey case? I would like to see him get a full exoneration. Absolutely. I, I, I think, you know, the thing is, so much of this is wrapped up in procedural stuff and all that sort of thing. That's the nice thing about conviction integrity units that are looking at these cases independently of, you know, the, the courts and all of that, that are run by prosecutors, if they're run right. There's a lot out there that are just for show, but they can cut through all of that procedural stuff and, um, and really get to the heart of the matter and really be able to do the right thing. But like I said, we're, we're so caught up in the adversarial system and a lot of times prosecutors do not want to admit that they're wrong. They are going to fight this thing to the bitter end. And somebody, I mean, I just wish, that's why I hate the adversarial system. I would just rather sit down with intelligent people who you know what they're doing and look at these things and go, okay, you know, it's obvious what's going on here, but have our work review. But, but still, I mean, he needs to be exonerated. He really needs to get out of there. And there's there's no reason to believe that that confession is anything but a story that was given to him by the detectives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, James. Thank you for joining me. Well, my pleasure. And I'm going to see you next week, I believe. first state in the nation to pass a bill banning police from lying to youth during interrogations. Legal experts say this is a practice that can significantly increase the risk of false confessions and wrongful convictions. The bill passed on Sunday and is expected to be signed into law by the governor in the coming weeks. Supporters of that bill claim that police often deceive suspects during questioning to try to secure confessions. 
Interrogation experts say that minors are especially vulnerable to such tactics and have been found to be two to three times more likely to confess to crimes that they did not commit.